gospel lesson and our sermon text today comes from John's gospel chapter 1 verses 29 through 42 and let me just remind you this is God's word to us and it's given to us because he loves us the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do ask that now you bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what it is that you would say to us this morning, because we need to hear from you above all the other voices in our lives, the voices in our culture and our surroundings, maybe in our family and friends and workplaces, and of course, the voices inside our own heads. What we need to hear more than anything is the voice of love. So we ask that we would hear that today in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage we just read today in John chapter 1, this is John the Baptist preparing the way for his cousin Jesus and his ministry that is um, being initiated and beginning. And I always, whenever I get to this passage in the season of Epiphany, like to think that John the Baptist was Jesus's hype man. You know what a hype man is, you know? It's like someone who gets everybody, all the crowds jazzed up and riled up uh, to get all the focus put on the main event, the main act that's coming without uh, themselves, even though they have to be, you know, super energetic and full of life and energy to not draw any attention away uh, from the main event itself. So John the Baptist is saying, you know, my job, my purpose Why I'm out here in the wilderness, out in the boonies, baptizing people is so that Jesus might be revealed. At verse 31, that is our epiphany moment. This is the season of epiphany where we 
remember and celebrate Jesus being revealed for who he is. And so John is saying, I'm out here to grant epiphany to Israel uh, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That he is the greatest. He is the one who comes not to baptize with water like I'm baptizing, but to actually baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist is shining the revealing light on Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now perhaps someone hyping someone else as the Lamb doesn't sound like you're doing a very good job of a hype man. Hey, everyone, it's the lamb. You know, like, wah, wah, wah. like that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But to a first century Jewish audience who, is, uh, who John the Baptist was primarily addressing, they would have not missed the significance of calling someone the lamb of God. They immediately would have gone back to their history and thought first and foremost of the Exodus Passover lamb when God delivered Uh, his people out of slavery in Egypt, and the sequence of events that took place, and the the Passover lamb that they sacrificed to represent uh, God's judgment passing over them and coming upon Egypt in order to deliver them from slavery. Uh, The first century Jewish audience would have immediately thought of the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament worship system and the tabernacle, and later in the temple, they would have thought of the suffering servant lamb, of the prophet Isaiah, of the weeping uh, lamb and the gentle lamb of the prophet Jeremiah. They would have thought of all these things and John the Baptist would have basically been saying to them, all those lambs that came before were just a shadow. This is the substance. The lamb of God is actually a man and he comes to take away the sins of the world. Now, as we reflect on this, what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? I wanted to take a moment just to say, you know, let's think, what, what is sin? What is sin? It's a word that maybe we don't even really use that often in our day-to-day language, and so it kind of, the meaning gets lost. What does sin mean? I think sometimes we have a superficial understanding of what sin is. We want to just reduce it, make it simple, and just say that sin is simply bad behavior. That sin is bad actions. But if sin is merely behavioral, then surely we can set up some sort of system where we are sinless, where we are without sin by our own self-reliance and self-sufficiency without needing a lamb of God's help. Just follow the rules. It's simple as that. Yet we know that spending all our energy towards An external morality isn't producing the freedom, isn't producing the shalom, the flourishing that we desire. That no matter how hard you may try to just simply do the right thing, obey God because he he says so, we still feel far away from God, from others, and from our own selves. We still experience the alienation that Paul speaks about in his letter to the church and Colossae. And the reason for that, the reason why just simply following the rules and obeying them can still leave you feeling so far from God is that it fundamentally we forget that it's not just simply about obeying rules. It's that we were created for a specific purpose. We were created by God's love for God's love. You were not created 
by your spouse for your spouse. You weren't created by your job for your job. You're not created by your money for your money. You're not created by your kids for your kids. That sounds backwards. Don't we create our kids? And yet, at the same time, don't you know, parents, so often it feels like, yeah, they come into the world, and next thing you know, they rule you. They're in charge of you now. If I can share a funny, silly little meme that I just thought was funny this week, I saw on Instagram where uh, it's like one mom says to another mom, I'm sick and tired of my kids. I've had enough. I'm going to sell them on eBay. And the other mom says, don't be silly. You're not going to sell them on eBay. You made them. Sell them on Etsy. But rather than trust that God is indeed good and his love for us is enough, we give up the security and the certitude that we have in personal union with God. And instead, we reach out for all sorts of other things to try and satisfy the desires of our heart. And when we come to full and self-reflective consciousness of who we are without the certainty of union with the divine love in which we were created for and by, that's when we start to unravel. This is why whenever you slow down and you stop being busy and distracted for more than five minutes, maybe more like more than five seconds, all those bad feelings inside of incompleteness start to well up inside you and you quickly scramble to find your phone, right, and start flipping through something to distract yourself from those emotions beginning to well up inside you. You slam the door. No, I'm not going to think about those things. You see, this is why sin is more, it's more complex than just bad behavior. The author and Christian counselor Chuck DeGroat says that sin is a complex matrix of motivations, attitudes, and actions rooted in hiding self-protection, and self-preservation. And I think that's accurate because when I think about the uh, original sin, the nature of Adam and Eve's original sin in the garden, is it just really simply that God said, don't eat this one thing, and they chose not to do it? They disobeyed a command and chose to to eat of the fruit of which they were told not to do it? Uh, No, it's more complicated than that. It's not just simply that they ate, it's that they chose not to trust the voice of God. They chose not to trust the voice of love, not to trust that God's word is good and whatever he has for us is good and to allow what God for some reason allows and uses even when we don't understand it. And instead, trust the voice of the deceiver. Instead, trust the voice of their own selves and reach out and grasp and take what they thought they had to have in order to be satisfied and secure. There's a lot more going on there just that they just decided to take this fruit that they weren't supposed to take. And what did Adam and Eve do after they sinned? They covered themselves. And when they heard God coming, they went and dove into the bushes to hide And we've been playing that same game ever since. That game that Chuck DeGroat says is a game rooted in hiding self-protection and self-preservation. This is the universal experience that we trade God's satisfying love for all sorts of other loves. And this is why we all struggle with this innate sense 
of incomplete, incompletion, dividedness, isolation, guilt, shame, insecurity, which consequently leads to all our other pursuits to destroy anyone who stands opposed to our efforts to satisfy our desires. We do this from a very young age, whether it be from making fun of the kid with glasses on the playground to distract away from our own senses of insecurity and shame and guilt to the violence and the war that we perpetrate against each other on a global scale. This complex subconscious reaction to the sin in ourselves and the sin in others and the sin in our world becomes what the contemplative traditions describe as the false self. And the false self is in opposition to our true self, which is, as Jameson preached on last week, that we are the beloved. That what is fundamentally true of us, our true self, is that we are beloved sons and daughters of God in whom he is well pleased. But it's the center of gravity that is the false self that we feel separate from God and others. And therefore what St. Augustine described as the curving in on oneself. That was Augustine's definition of sin, this curving in onto one's own self to the point of self destruction. Now I ask you, does that sound about right? That sin is not simply I told a lie and that was wrong. I looked at porn and that was wrong. I stole from my boss, my employer, and that was wrong. And I just got to stop doing those things. If I just stop doing those things, I'll be okay. Sin is more than that. It is that I betray the love of my soul for lesser, empty loves. And John the Baptist says, behold, behold, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take all that away, who comes to take away the sin of the world, the sin that broke this natural order such that all of creation is groaning for its redemption to be bought back and be made right and made new, the sin that makes us vulnerable to demonic forces and evil, the sin that creates systems of injustice and oppression, the sin that causes us to suffer when we hurt each other, the sin that causes us to suffer when we hurt ourselves. Jesus comes. And in profound solidarity with the world, takes up a cross as the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb who takes away, is taking away, and will take away the sin of the world. If this is what sin is, if this is what Jesus is doing when he comes as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, then it also begs another question. What does it mean then to follow Jesus. We just sang that classic hymn. Well, if we have decided to follow Jesus, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, then what does it mean to follow him? Because interestingly enough in our passage, immediately following the epiphany as Jesus being baptized and God's voice declaring him the beloved Son of God in whom he is well pleased, just coming off the heels of John the Baptist declaring this is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, Jesus begins to call his first disciples to follow him, 
right off the heels of Jesus being revealed as these things. So what does it mean to follow him? If Jesus is the Lamb of God, then what it means is to embrace a life beyond self-interest for the good of the world. It means putting an end to denying our sin and acting like it doesn't exist or projecting our sin onto others. Oh, it's not my fault, it's their fault. And instead, embrace a solidarity with the world just as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world did. You see, following Jesus is a vocation to share the fate of God for the life of the world. As Paul says, it is to suffer, even if in the smallest and teensiest of ways, the same thing that God suffers eternally on our Behalf. It is to embrace this cruciform pattern of the universe as the way to forgiveness, to healing, to restoration and wholeness, to life and to love. Or as one theologian puts it, he says this, those who respond to the call and agree to carry and love what God loves, which is both the good and the bad, and to pay the price for its reconciliation within themselves. These are the followers of Jesus Christ. They are the leaven, the salt, the remnant, the mustard seed that God uses to transform the world. Which means this whole Christian life thing It's not a very enviable position, is it? Because that is hard. That is a difficult calling. And if you're finding the Christian life to be extremely challenging, well then guess what, brothers and sisters? It means you're probably doing it right. So there's the good news. And if you're finding the Christian life to be easy, well, perhaps you're not living it. I don't know, maybe you have an extra special dispensation of the Holy Spirit, which in that case, God bless. But it is hard to follow the Lamb of God into suffering solidarity for the life of the world. It was hard for these disciples who wanted to know how they could follow Jesus, and Jesus asked them, you know, what is it? What do you want? What are you seeking? And many of them did follow, but they found out pretty quickly into Jesus' ministry, this, this thing, this ain't easy. This following Jesus business is pretty tough. And a lot of them turned away and left. And Jesus looked at the 12, and he asked them the same question. Are you going to go away too? Are you going to leave? Are you going to bail on this movement now? And I think like Peter We have to respond the same way. Peter, who was given this new name when he followed Jesus, when asked the question, are you two going to turn away and stop following? Peter said, Lord, where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That he is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And so I pray that God give us, by his spirit, the faith, the confidence to follow him in this solidarity for the suffering of the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.
Thank you. 